2: Welcome to Sunday Take for July 16th, 2023. I'm your host, Blois Olson. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, It's another summer weekend with great weather and we soak it up before January and February hit, but that doesn't mean there's not plenty to talk about. This week, we span the spectrum from Republican to Democrat, from DC to Minnesota. First, we'll talk to Julia Coleman about the culture of moms in the Senate. She has labeled herself as Mama Bear. But the question is, how are they having different conversations about issues than maybe 10, 15 years ago, or how men may have approached similar issues to family and child rearing? And then we'll go to D.C. We'll talk to Representative Betty McCollum about the defense bill, which became more and more polarized and more and more partisan in today's Washington. It passed on Friday, but McCollum, who is the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee on Defense, has some issues with some of the social stuff that Republicans have put in as riders on that bill. Now it's time for the Sustainability Minute from Minnesota Corn Growers. You know, we've had a hot summer, and in that hot summer, that means nights are not getting as cool. That means soil doesn't cool down. That means your lawn isn't as cool. And it means our crops don't have the cycle of growing. So it's important as we experience changing climate, what agriculture can do about that. So that's why at the University of Minnesota, they are studying how to, with less food, corn and other crops may yield less because of these temperatures. The University of Minnesota is studying the idea that if there's less nitrous oxidite emissions, how do we get as much food? Look, that's science. And the center at the University of Minnesota was started by the National Science Foundation, the, Univers- the USDA, Uni- uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the University of Minnesota. But Minnesota corn growers are supporting that research, supporting that operation, because they know the importance of figuring out these temperature fluctuations. Nitrous oxide is a greenhouse gas. And when it warms, it might have more potent impact on the planet than carbon dioxide. So how do we, if it's going to warm, how do we reduce those gases and produce enough food and fuel in a sustainable manner? That's what Minnesota corn is doing. That's why it supports the research at the University of Minnesota to be sustainable. So ag can be sustainable. So soils can be healthy and air can be cleaner. So as you're driving around, you're looking at this corn, know that Minnesota corn growers are working to make sure that corn and food is grown in a way that helps the planet, not harms the planet. I'm Blois Olson. That's this week's Sustainability Minute. Up next, Senator Julia Coleman on the mom culture of the Minnesota Senate and two big new ideas to help families in Minnesota. TuneIn is
0: the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my word. You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp and refreshing taste. Or if you overcame. Tour tour. You deserve this ice cold reward. Modelo, the markable fighter. Trick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port Chicago, Illinois.
2: My first guest this week on Sunday Take is Senator Julia Coleman. She represents the West Metro Chanhassen area. And, uh, you know, she... She's kind of coined herself a mama bear, but deeper than that, uh, she's a member of the Senate who has identified that with so many new and younger women senators that there's a different culture and a different conversation that often happens across party lines about mom issues. And she raised one this week, and I want to talk about that and a few other things. Senator, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you it's good to be chatting with you again. I think the last time I was newly pregnant with twins, newly elected and it was kind of a uh get to know you piece so a lot's changed since then so it's great, great great to talk to you again.
2: Yeah, no time flies. I have to remind myself that you know, it's those election cycles and new members that like goes like a roller coaster really fast and then um this summer I feel like there's a little more pace to our content. So um You, uh, there's a story out this week about a proposal regarding, you know, disability or, you know, people would think of them as handicap tabs for uh, women who are pregnant, who are having pregnancy challenges, whether it's mobility or breathing. Can you just talk about this? Because I think the genesis of it is also how normal people, everyday people, people who see an issue in the public and want the legislature to do something about it, that that actually still happens it's not just legislators and lobbyists and special interests that come up with these ideas.
1: Absolutely. So the origin of this bill actually came from a group of brilliant uh, fellows with the Humphrey Institute, one of whom's wife uh, is recently had a baby she's from Costa Rica, and she was a little bit appalled when she came to Minnesota and saw the lack of accommodations here that they actually have over there one of them being uh, pregnancy parking. And so what this bill does, and it ended up being amended on in the Senate is it, well, what it doesn't do, I would say is qualify pregnancy as a disability. But what it does do is say, if your pregnancy is causing mobility issues, like a disability does, that you will contemporary temporarily qualify for these tags. And it, kind of struck me as a no-brainer to chief author when I was presented with the idea. You know, first pregnancy went fine. I was exercising in the third trimester. Second pregnancy with twins, well, that's a whole different ballgame. And as those words are coming out of my mouth, I'm realizing that sounds like a baseball twins reference. It's not. (laughs) It's a whole different ballgame with pregnancy with twins. And it was incredible pain, searing pain. Just to go in and out of appointments, I ended up just paying extra and taking the hit to the budget to have most of our groceries and, you know, items delivered. Uh, But I still had three or four doctor's appointments a week. And it was actually walking across this massive parking lot after an appointment that I ended up going into premature labor with my twins around 24 weeks. And so it's a no brainer. I think this is just a good first step in the right direction. But when it comes to pregnancy parking, I want to see how this goes and then potentially increase access even further through legislation.
2: Um, I just think you raise an issue that for my decades, we've talked about women's issues, women's rights, that this one's probably staring in front of us. And I think about Times where I'm at Target or the mall or a retailer, and I think I have a parking spot, and I go to turn in, and it says for expectant or new mothers. So retailers have kind of caught on that you're an important demographic <laughs> while you're expecting or you have small children. Let's make it easier for you. Um, do we have any sense of how um, how you know? I I guess even healthcare providers probably don't have expectant mother parking. Do you have any sense of how many women have mobility challenges when they're pregnant? Because I will tell you that, you know, one of the interesting things I've always heard is, and it's obviously everybody's different and every pregnancy is different. And let's be clear, I wouldn't know but like some people talk about how awesome, how much they actually feel better when they're pregnant. But, mm-hmm. you know, without the complications and some of the the sad stories we hear, do you have any sense as you've talked to, you know, doctors or, or uh, other advocates, maybe how prevalent this is, is an issue?
1: You know, there's no really firm data that I've seen as far as the prevalence uh, in Minnesota amongst expecting mothers. However, what I can say is talking to doctors and even some of my colleagues who have had wives in this position, and this is kind of the direction I want to look at next, is the prevalence of falls in the third trimester is actually pretty high. And, And that gets exacerbated in a state where there can be icy patches in you know, sidewalks and in parking lots. And the impact of falling in your third trimester can be deadly for both baby and mom. And so it's something that let's see how uh, many people use these disability tags when their mobility is impacted Uh, by their pregnancy. And let's talk about how we can further improve this to expand to everyone. Because even if you're having a healthy, great pregnancy, uh, you don't want to risk falling and injuring that baby or yourself in the third trimester. And and that seems to be more common uh, even than the legislation we passed this last year.
2: I think your point about iciness and winter here is absolutely true and the complicating factors that come from a fall. You know, it's not necessarily that you can kind of you know, give details or, you know, share private conversations. But can you talk a little bit more about the culture of the Senate and how you talk to your colleagues across the aisle, how you think of these, discuss these topics? Because I will say that, you know, it has struck me that some of these topics that A, were either never brought up or B, were talked about before I proposed ideas have a different conversation now. They have a different public lens, and I, and you've talked about a senator, Mama Bear, but the uh, how moms and women senators talk to each other about these issues in a different way. That maybe party doesn't matter, or that maybe your predecessor, you know, if it was a male or when it was male dominated, the the conversations probably were very different, or they didn't even happen. Can you talk about just the culture across party lines amongst women in the Senate.
1: Absolutely. I would say two years ago, when I became the youngest woman elected to the state Senate, uh, it was a little scary for me, a little nerve wracking to go up to my male colleagues, because we were in the majority at that time, and try to talk about some of these issues. And I was remarkably surprised because a lot had of work had come before me in the work of senators like Michelle Benson and Karen Housley and people who have st- had started to take up the mantle on mom's issues prior to me ever getting into the Senate. Uh, a lot of them would help initiate the conversations for me. And I, it was well received. It was well received. And if I was nervous, there was great leadership like Jeremy Miller pulling me aside and saying, you know, I like your paid family leave plan." Let's go talk to the caucus about it. Let's garner support for it. Let's get it passed out of the Senate. And it has definitely been um, something that I've been remarkably surprised being in the minority as well. I'll go up to a Democrat senator with an idea and I'll just pitch the idea. And if it sounds good and they're a mom, they'll sign on board as well. And I think that issues impacting mothers and children, they rise above demographics, party lines, whether you're in the Senate or the House, it's just good for Minnesota. And it's been a really rewarding experience for me to champion these issues from both the majority and the minority. It's given me such a great viewpoint uh, in what can often be tumultuous times at the legislature.
2: Well, and that's what I want to just kind of wrap up here, too, is that you know, these family issues do keep coming up, whether it's family medical leave, whether it's childcare, those kinds of things. My guest is Senator Julia Coleman. She's a Republican state senator from the West Metro, the Chanhassen, Chask area. Senator, uh, there was another story that got a lot of attention this week. It actually got a lot of chatter on our air on WCCO here, which is requiring insurance companies to play, pay for fertility treatments for families. Um, this is, you know, it's being, you know, championed by Senator Aaron McQuaid. Is this something that falls into that bucket? Your thoughts on that bill, as you talk to young mothers, young families, is this one of those things that, you know, we have to rethink in Minnesota?
1: I think that it's definitely an issue that warrants conversations in the legislature. I can't tell you how many of my friends, unfortunately, are struggling with infertility and are unable to afford that type of treatment. On the other hand, what we saw in the last year of the legislature is in an attempt to say, hey, we got everything done in our first two years, things get rushed through. There isn't thoughtful debate Everyone shows up to the floor knowing exactly what they're going to say, exactly how they're going to vote. And when sloppy work happens, we're seeing now that we're a few months out that there are ramifications to that. So I want this to be incredibly well thought out. I haven't read the bill, but from my understanding, I don't know if there's parameters around, for example, age. Um, Speaking to some people who have gone through fertility treatments Some organizations or companies, if it doesn't take, there's a portion refunded. Is that going to continue under this legislation? Is there going to be a conversation in order to get most Republicans on board about the handling of the leftover embryos? Uh, Because for many Republicans, those are human beings. And so I would like this to not just be rammed through a piece of legislation because it's too important to be. Uh, But it's definitely, for my opinion, a conversation worth having.
2: When you think about it, you raise some important issues. And those are some of the issues I thought about this week is, you know, birth control pills, for instance, were approved to go over the counter. What what do you say about the conversations that happen? Because obviously, sometimes, especially when it comes to issues with women's health and abortion, uh, a, a woman's right to choose. They, they become emotional or or polarizing really quick. Do you sense that on um, issues like that, that you can have conversations before they come polarizing with maybe colleagues that are of the same generation uh, of the same, you know, are also women that maybe, you know, before it was just this hard line in the sand and, you know, people had, you know, either interest groups or others kind of dug their heels in before there was even discussion.
1: I think on a lot of issues, if both sides are interested and we just have to hash out the differences, There is a much greater willingness to show up and work together, make it a bipartisan effort when it's something like the example you brought up abortion and Democrats want for any reason through all nine months, no comfort care after the baby's dead. And Republicans, there's kind of a spectrum on this issue. Those tend to be more, more heated, dig in your heel conversations. But this seems like one that you know, I'm saying I'm interested in working on this, uh, that if we show up and we're all interested, we just have to hash out the differences that we might be able to see some bipartisan progress on this.
2: Senator Coleman, I know we'll talk down the line and thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you. Now, the next guest is going to be a little flip. We're going to go to Washington and we're going to talk to Representative Betty McCullum about the defense appropriations bill and the new politics there. I'm Boy Sulson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. My final guest this week on Sunday Take is Representative Betty McCollum. She's the ranking Democrat on the Appropriations Committee for Defense Spending. And Friday, the defense bill uh, passed. It will now be negotiated between the House and the Senate. And it just seemed to me that there seems to be more non-defense issues creeping into the defense bill. And I wanted to talk to uh, Representative McCollum about that. Representative McCollum, thanks for joining me.
3: Well, thanks. And you're right. There's two parts of the defense bill. And the one that passed this Friday is uh, called the NDAA. It's the Defense Reauthorization Act. And that gives um, the committee that I work on, the budget committee, the authority to uh, spend money in which programs and what lines. And so um, I'm going to take you back just to a couple of weeks ago. Uh, well, no, I'm going to take you back a little farther. Remember when we were having the big discussion about what we were going to do with um, the, the deficit uh, and debt ceiling and although the Republicans were, you know, forcing us maybe into a, into a real uh, problem with being able to get any of our spending bills done to get the government funded to run on time. Well, there was an agreement. I voted for the agreement. Republicans voted for the agreement. The senators voted for the agreement. The White House, uh, did, uh, the agreement, uh, had a 1% increase for, uh, uh, discretionary and for defense. But basically what it did, it, it, it gave a little boost to defense spending over the, um, very important, uh, mission that, we have here at the federal government to make sure that we have roads and bridges and trains and air traffic controllers and all those bells and whistles are working. And what the Republicans <laughs> did when we got the Committee is they walked back on the agreement. They went back to the same top-line target that they proposed early on, which um, undercut uh, the bipartisan agreement, $119 billion. So we started with the Republican um, appropriators going back on their word, going back on their word on that. So now uh, I'll fast forward to the Bill. When we were doing um, a couple of weeks ago, when we did the uh, defense authorization bill, mm-hmm. I found for the first time um, just hateful, hateful, um, Rhetoric and we call them writers, things that were attached to the defense spending bill that had nothing to do with our military readiness. In fact, they were going to take us backwards from having a military that was prepared to complete its mission and come home safe. So normally, as you said, Lois, you know it's what do we need for housing? What do we need for uh, our servicemen and women to have the equipment that they need to you know do their mission and come home safely? What do we need to do for base housing? What are some of the things that we need to do in order to have our military prepared, should it go into battle, to complete its mission? And I can't stress this enough, have everything that our servicemen and women have to come home safe. So that should have been the focus of the debate on, on the spending money. But instead, uh, the Republicans uh, decided not only to... Uh, uh, cut uh, funding for uh, climate resilience programs, which I worked very hard on. But they also went after the civilian employees of the Department of Defense and eliminated their jobs and thought somehow it would be better to contract them out. So if going back on the pledge on what to do on the discretionary uh, spending wasn't enough, if going back on uh, our work on, on climate resilience wasn't enough, if attacking uh, hardworking civilian employees for the Department of Defense wasn't enough, they had more. And what they did is they allowed to, uh, cut, um, programs that we've put in place, uh, to make everyone feel welcome in our military. Instead, they attacked the GLTBQ plus community with hateful provisions. They rolled back a provision I had worked with, with, um, the, um, Secretary of Defense, the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, on making sure that service women and uh, family members who were in states that had the most severe abortion restrictions, um, that they could travel uh, and not bear any out-of-pocket expense uh, to travel to get their health care needs met. Not, I want to be clear, the Hyde Amendment was was still in, and I don't agree with the Hyde Amendment, but was still in. There were just going to be no taxpayers' funds paying for abortion, but it even prevented the work that the department of defense was doing to allow these women to travel. Um, you know, we, there was one, one uh, conversation that we had when we were doing the bill um, early on. Um, as I said, just, just a couple of, of weeks ago, the, the, the spending bill. And it was like, well, we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about, you know, history. We don't want to talk about critical, you know, they, they were saying that the, the, our military academies were teaching critical race theory. They want. We had discussions about where we move forward on renaming military bases, not after Confederate soldiers, um, but after you know everyday American heroes. Um, they wanted to uh, work to undo that. So we had that in the spending bill. We were hopeful that in the authorization bill that pat that just passed on Friday. Chairman Smith uh, the Dem- uh excuse me he's not the chairman anymore nor am I we're ranking members now ranking member smith was so hopeful that he'd be able to keep all that hateful rhetoric out of the de- out of the authorization bill for the defense department but instead we have um the same outrageous provisions i fought against 3 weeks ago in the bill attacking um the the rights of lgbtq members Discouraging building a diverse military where everybody felt welcome, denying uh, our service women and military families access to the health care that they needed. And this is, this is where I come down both on the, this bill and the, um, the authorizing bill and the spending bill. What these bills do with this hateful language in it, we have an all volunteer military. We need everybody who wants to raise up and serve serve our country and defend uh, democracy here at home and around the world. Our members, service members sacrifice so much, and so do their families, to have the legislation that the Republicans have put forward basically tells everyday Americans that want to serve our country, you're not welcome in our military. And when we start telling our service members who volunteer to serve that they're not welcome, um, we're also telling their families they're not welcome, and it's going to affect uh, retention and recruitment. So I went on quite a bit, but I-, I just can't say enough about, I'm just shocked that we're rolling back civil rights protections in the defense bill for for everything it stands for, which is keeping our democracy safe and strong.
2: Representative McCollum, um, let's just, just uh, obviously those are the highlights those are the things that are you know divisive they feel like cable tv talk as much on your side as they do the other side when you talk to your colleagues who have put together the defense appropriation budgets you've you've got a lot of experience there is this being driven by their base is this being driven by the freedom caucus what comes like where does it come from in the process and is it you know the the certain leadership that might not think it's a good idea can't stand up to those parts of their own caucus
3: well it was a failure for republican leadership not to stand up and protect the integrity of the election that elected joe biden president you know not every Person I've wanted to win an elections won an election. Heck, the night I was first elected, they, they, they announced Gore won. And then within 20 minutes of me finding out I was going to the, the U.S. Congress, they announced, nope, it's, it's George Bush. I mean, you know, elections have consequences and sometimes they're disappointing. Um, on, on January 6th, after we were, you know, maliciously attacked by a mob trying to overthrow our government, some of the Republicans came to the floor, including uh, now Speaker McCarthy, and said, this was wrong. This this needs to stop. But as soon as, you know, Trump and Fox News and Newsmax and all the rest, you know, get their got their talk, talking heads going. Um, They all came back and said, no, it wasn't that bad. You know, Trump really did win. Um, it was just a regular day with a lot more tourists at the Capitol. That was the opportunity that they had to stand united, stand up for the truth, stand up and defend our democracy. So ever since that day, um, for some reason, I have watched many of my colleagues be afraid to speak up and speak out. And instead, now, in order to keep their majority, they have to feel that they have to placate to about 20 people in their caucus that are extreme. And these are the individuals that are, are you know, they talk about the culture wars uh, and they talk about woke. But this is what they're doing. They're denying uh, citizens, uh, you know, the ability to feel included and welcomed in our country. And, you know, as I'm a social studies teacher, we shouldn't be teaching any history, I guess, even at military academies about, um, the Civil War. If it would make anybody feel uncomfortable if they somehow lived in the Southern, if they lived in a Southern state and maybe had a family member who served in the Confederate, we can't make anybody feel uncomfortable. So we just, we just don't talk about anything or we make up a new history that makes them feel comfortable rather than dealing with the struggle our countries had to become a more perfect union.
2: My guess is Representative Betty McCollum. We're talking about the defense appropriation bill, which passed the House and uh, she voted against on Friday and the politics of it. I just want to pivot for this last part about our preparedness, Ukraine, kind of what your sense of the state of the military, military spending priorities are right now And are we ready? Are we in the best place? Or what do we need to do to be in the best place and most prepared for the future and kind of this new dynamic we have in global challenges?
3: Well, one of the things that I was working on when I was chairing out, I'll continue to work on, is the Department of Defense sees what is going on with our climate and climate change as a national security issue. As more countries uh, face drought, as more countries have extreme heat days, and as more countries lose land mass, especially island communities or even Bangladesh to rising sea level, there's going to be more conflict for resources around the world. So the Department of Defense has been very clear wanting to do what it can as the largest consumer of energy in the federal government to move towards clean green energy, move towards resilience, move towards sustainability. And instead the Republicans cut all those provisions out of a budget that I was working on. Because the Department of Defense not only sees this as a win for uh, protecting our planet, uh, but keeping uh our country in a in in a way in which we're not surrounded by so many nations facing insecurity and conflict. Um and it saves taxpayers dollars too if you just want to get down to brass tax on that, right? It saves money uh if you're not buying a lot of old fossil fuels. So very disappointed on that. And that's what's going to help us be ready for the next battle. New innovation, new ways of of, of doing things. Uh to your point about Ukraine. Um I was very outspoken and I told um the Defense Department immediately, I wanted the, the President to know I did not support the decision to send cluster ammunition to Ukraine, even though the Ukrainians requested it. Um we can do better than that in working with our NATO allies. Um I'm disappointed that the United States uh has not supported the the, the ban on, on landmines and cluster bombs, something I'll continue to work on. Um, but we we need to continue to work with our NATO partners to to support to support Ukraine. Ukraine is, uh, you know, fighting a war that never should have happened. They never should have been attacked. Um, civilians have been, um, you know, uh, hospitals and restaurants and schools have been deliberately targeted by the Russians. And I've been in that 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 theater around in Europe and our European allies know if the Russian aggression isn't checked by supporting Ukraine. Uh, Russia will just look uh, to encroach uh, more and more to take more territory.
2: I know we could go the whole hour, but I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Representative McCollum. When we come back this week's take, it's the heat of summer here in Minnesota. What else do we have to look forward to for this fall? I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. This week's take is, well it's kind of soft. It's not harsh. It's the kind of take you might have as you're sipping your coffee this morning or talking to your neighbors. It's this things are okay feeling that Minnesota has right now, but there's some unease that I'm hearing about, whether it is the Minneapolis Public Schools financial situation, whether it is the climate and the warmer weather, whether it is the economy in certain parts of the state. There's not panic. And after going through the pandemic, we're all in a different place, but there's an unease. And this week it came out that Minnesota on the CNBC ranking, ranked fifth best state for business in the United States, displacing Texas. How could we not be more proud? In fact, we should be proud, but we should also be mindful. That this unease about education, this unease about the economy, this unease in our communities about the value of government, it's natural. And next year, being a statewide election, it's probably going to be exacerbated. So I don't want anybody to panic. I want you to enjoy your summer. But my take this week is don't forget to say What you think when you're uneasy. Because when I say it and say good on the ranking, let's see where we are in five years, I'm criticized. Is it that Minnesota passive aggressive also means let's not talk about what's potentially bad news? Let's just live in the moment. Well, I believe in living in the moment, but I also believe that if we care about this state, some of these little issues that could become big issues deserve attention soon, whether the next legislative session, the next election or even sooner. That's your take this week. Follow along. I'm with Vanita Monday through Thursday at 6:20. You can follow our newsletters at fluence-newsletters.com. I'm Blois sulson until next week. That's Sunday take. Tune in is the audio
0: platform with something for everyone. News.